Some of you may be the kind of observant people who read the term cards and check up on what's happening today. You will have been horrified by the prospect that I'm dealing with seven chapters this morning, chapters 5 to 11 of the book of Exodus. Don't worry, there'll be a lunch break at 12.30 and uh, we shall come back to it. But please don't worry, uh, keep your seatbelts on and we'll do our best to flick through some of these chapters and get a great overview. I've tried to, uh, I've taken the liberty of changing the title because let's face it, confronting Pharaoh doesn't seem a problem to any of us. Oh please, you must listen by the way because you've got to enter this competition. So the kids are listening across there and so you must do as well. Um, But uh, we don't confront Pharaoh, he doesn't exist, we don't even know who he was, probably Ramesses II, he existed then, in the second millennium before Christ, a long time ago. But I've changed it to a story of confrontation, because I believe we need to be reminded, if we hadn't got the message, that we're living in a world that's not just confrontation in the Middle East, it's on our doorstep, and it comes very close in all kinds of ways And it's got some very sinister religious undertones. So we need to be aware. Confrontation is not an option. If you want a Christianity that's peaceful, uh, which you can keep to yourself, then uh, I have nothing to say, I'm afraid. The Bible doesn't know anything of that kind of religion. We are inevitably involved in confrontation. Now, it's very interesting that actually Pharaoh and the coming out to the... uh, from Egypt and the Promised Land is a kind of story that people often take as being their pilgrimage. And uh, next week when Paul's back, he'll be taking us out through the, through the important moment of God's people coming out. And in modern history, there have been two kinds of theologies that want to make the Pharaoh uh, and the coming out of Egypt their story. For example, there's liberation theology which suggests that the great evil in the world is Western capitalism and the third world uh, and slavery and that God is at work in our day in liberation. Now, there's some truth in that. There's a lot of things in Western capitalism that's wrong and we need to learn. But Pharaoh and the story is really not relevant to that. Then there's feminist theology. Here I am on very dangerous ground. There is feminist theology. I assure you, that if you understood or read feminist theology, 99% of the ladies here would agree with what I'm about to say. No, I think I changed that. 100% of the ladies here would agree with what I'm going to say. But feminist theology sees the Pharaoh as being male chauvinist domination. And the trouble with religion, it's been run by men, and it's time that women had their rightful place. Now, there's some truth in that, of course. And thank God for the real liberation that's come for women through genuine Christianity. But if you want to see feminist theology, it's worse, try a trip to America and the Episcopal Church in America and you'll find it in so many ways. There was a service in a cathedral in Britain where Christa was on the cross and the female Christ was worshipped. And I don't think you would want that and all sorts of things that go with it. And for feminist theology, Pharaoh is the male chauvinist symbol Well, now, what is the story going to say to us? Let me just remind you that uh, in the two I've taken already uh, on this particular series, I've reminded you that in one sense, the Old Testament story is actually looking onto the cross. And that's why we read for our New Testament reading from the Transfiguration. When Moses was there and Elijah discussed 
the departure of Jesus. And the word is literally the exodus of Jesus. That is, they were talking about the fulfilment of which the story we're reading was the prototype, the anticipation. And of course we look on to the, to the moment of the cross when God confronted the evil one at the greatest moment in world history and came through with victory. But it was painful. But the other thing about the, this Old Testament story is that we can take snapshots along the way and see what God's dealing with Moses and the people of God and the people of Egypt, what it says to us in our world. We have a right to see that. There's a kind of snapshot picture of where we are. And that's why our children are learning about the story of God and Pharaoh. And the challenge then comes, as I tried to end last week's study, if you were here, and if you weren't here, let me just say this, that last week we saw Moses very reluctantly saying, here I am, please send somebody else. And I contrasted that with Isaiah, who said, here am I, send me. And immediately said that, God said, okay, you go. But people are going to be hardened. They're not going to listen. They'll hear, but they won't hear. They'll see, but they won't see. And those last verses of Isaiah 6, in all six, first six books of the New Testament, because they speak of what happens when God's message goes out. People's hearts are hardened. And we'll keep on seeing in these chapters when we have a little glance, you've got the problem of Pharaoh's heart. It was hardened. Oh, he was responsible. He hardened his heart, but at the end of the day, God, it says the Lord hardened his heart. It was so sovereignly overruled that God in his mercy confronting Pharaoh, the victory came at a great cost. May I just remind you as we look then at these three pictures of confrontation that there always will be a battle. Now we use different words nowadays but I remember years ago baptizing a child and we use the old words that this child may not be ashamed to confess the faith of Christ crucified and fight manfully under his banner against sin, the world and the devil. You may remember those words. And this mother of this child said, I don't, I don't want those words. I'm a pacifist and I don't want my child to have words about fighting. And I said, I'm sorry, whether you like it or not, whether you're a pacifist or not, your child, if he becomes a Christian, is going to be engaged in conflict. It's part of the scene. I shall sign him with a sign of the cross. The most painful moment in world's history and yet the most glorious moment in world history. That's why Paul could end one of his most confrontational letters, Galatians, by saying, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross. I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. No strange mystical stigmata, but places where he had suffered for the sake of the gospel. Friends, do remember, in the world in which we live many of our fellow believers at this moment are bearing in their bodies the marks of Jesus. And the confrontation is coming onto our doorstep. I found it very intriguing that um, two of our bishops have gone across to America to try to sort out the problems in the Episcopal Church in America, two of our more conservative evangelical bishops, and the, the newspaper that I read called them hardliners. And they're going to deal with the conservative people in America who are the hardliners. Friends, those who stand for the truth are hardliners. Those who believe what the Bible t taught 
are hardliners. Those who believe what the Church of England has always said it believes are hardliners. This is the battle that we face. So that by way of introduction. Now, three thoughts about confrontation. First of all, in, verse, in chapters 5 to 7, confrontation inevitable. Secondly, in chapters 7 to 9, confrontation painful. And finally, if we get there, uh, before the coffee break, confrontation fruitful. We shall get there. First of all, confrontation inevitable. In the chapters 5 to 7, we've now got the moment, Moses goes back to his people goes back to Pharaoh, goes back to God. He's always moving around like these arbitrators, moving from one place to another. He moves around. Moses goes from Pharaoh to God to his people. Just pick out one moment in chapter 5, verse 22. Moses had been to Pharaoh said, Not on your life, or words to that effect. He had been to his people who were excited and then discovered that because... Because Pharaoh resisted, they were having a worse time. And here's Moses in chapter 5, verse 22. He returned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you brought trouble upon this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's brought trouble upon this people. You've not rescued your people at all. You see, from the moment he went to Pharaoh, from the moment he came back to be their rescuer, there was confrontation. It got harder. Now I did mention last week there's a kind of worldly religion, a worldly Christianity that goes around offering you, if you believe enough, always wealth, prosperity, comfort, health. It's yours for the asking. And there are plenty of adverts in church press to tell you that this kind of thing is on offer, if you want that kind of thing. But it's not biblical, of course. The Bible offers something very different. Because confrontation happened, because Moses went back to his people, it got more difficult. I recollect years and years ago, a dear lady who became a Christian, and uh, she came quite regularly to church for a while and then stopped. By the way, I think I've told this before, you, you always make mistakes of sitting in the same place in church, because uh, when, when you're absent, the vicar knows you're not here. You see, if you moved around the church, I wouldn't know you were not here, but I remember this dear lady always sat in the gallery over there. Over there, where Bill Thomas is now. Over there. She always sat over there. And uh, after a few weeks, she disappeared. She wasn't there. So I thought I'd try and see what had happened. And we met in one of my very rare visits to the co-op. I didn't go to the co-op very often in those days, but one day I did. And uh, we met. We, we sort of circumnavigated the toilet rolls for a while. She had seen me. She had seen me, and I'd seen her, and she pretended she hadn't seen me. And, and after a while, we bumped. Oh, she's right. What a surprise. I said, yes, what a surprise. And she said, you've been wondering where I've got me to church, won't you? I said, yes, I am, actually. Well, come, come have coffee. So I went to have coffee. Why? Well, she said, you see, before I came to church and became a Christian, I had a very happy home life. Everything was going well. Now, because I've become a Christian, my husband has told me I've got to make a choice between church and him. What choice do I make? Well, I said all the usual things about not rushing to church and not, and not and neglecting her husband, but at the end of the day, they disappeared. She went. Because, you see, it became harder once she became a Christian. That's the real life very often. Confrontation happened because she was a believer. It comes at different levels. Now, please note, the message was rejected 
and the messenger was restored. The message was rejected in chapter 5 because when Moses in verse 2 gets to Pharaoh, Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Why should I let Israel go? I'm not going to let Israel go. I'm making it harder now for these slaves if they're getting restless. And so you know the story. I hope you do. That they were making bricks now without straw. Life got tougher. Now what's this got to do with my world? Well, it's not just a preparation for the day when Jesus would go through the greatest uh, rejection of all in the world. It's a picture of what happens when we are true to the to the gospel. This is what is happening. I hope you do realise that we are living in an age when there is great antagonism in our Western world to a Christian gospel. I mentioned last week there's a book just written called The Twilight of Atheism. Atheism is dying. Thank God for that. On the other hand, what is taking the place of atheism is all kinds of religious manifestations and they will hate the gospel of Jesus. There is nobody more illiberal than the liberal theologian who cannot stand the dogmatism of that which the New Testament preaches and which this church stands for. And therefore, we're going to have people saying, why should I listen to you? So if you are a person who can't stand confrontation, there are problems. May I just have a little rider? There's just a tiny percentage of any church that loves confrontation. Sort of person who, if they go to a church when there's no trouble, they'll be trouble fairly soon when they've got there. Because they like a battle. There's always got to be one. Well, you, you forget if you're one of those. But most of us don't like that. And what about poor Moses? Well, he had to be restored. You see, at the end of chapter 5, he went back to God and said, it's got worse and not better. And the Lord says in chapter 6, you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. He will eventually let them go. I am going to do it. And he renews his promise in chapter 6, verse 2, and gives a renewed comment about his name. And there will be final victory, but at a price. Confrontation inevitable. Secondly, in chapter 7 to 9, confrontation painful. You get the climax in chapter 9, 13 to 17, if you want to look it up sometime, where uh, God reminds Moses as this constant toing and froing, yes, this is what the Lord says, let my people go. And the Lord went to Moses, the Lord said, get up early and tell Pharaoh this message. And it will happen. And in verse 15, verse 16, I have raised you up for this very purpose that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. There's some tremendous theology behind this moment of God and Pharaoh. There will be final victory. God in his mercy will keep on speaking to Pharaoh and Pharaoh in his obstinacy will keep on hardening his heart. Should there be anybody here in church this morning who knows this message and you keep on hardening your heart against the truth of it, be careful. There comes a moment when you won't feel able to respond at all. And there comes a day when God will ask you to render an account of why you hadn't listened to the message. Beware. But the confrontation, the painful confrontation, if it's painful uh, to those who are stand for the truth, 
It's even more painful for those who reject it. You get the story of the ten plagues. Now, there was a time when I went to school when you knew the plagues in order. You could recite the ten plagues and every good, well-brought-up child knew what they were. I guess maybe if I asked you around here, we might have problems. But the ten plagues are interesting as they, if you read through the story, and they come for three reasons. First of all, they're a proof of divinity. That's the first reason. They are demonstrating who God really is. Just notice in chapter 8, verse 19, you get to the moment when the magician said to Pharaoh, they had tried their own magic arts. The magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God, but Pharaoh's heart was hard. Interesting, isn't it? The magicians actually were very good at producing uh, opposition up to a point to to uh, Moses. If you go back to chapter 7, in chapter 7, verse 22, that the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts. Always remember, it's not only God that can perform miracles. The New Testament talks about the evil one aping Christ with miracles. And so, it happened. Now, the intriguing thing is, they went so far, but only so far. Do you not find it odd that in chapter 8, verse 7, the magicians did the same thing as by their secret arts? What did they do? Moses, or God through Moses, brought frogs all over the land. Now, wouldn't it have been a marvellous effort if the magicians could have got rid of the frogs? All the magicians do was produce some more frogs as they come up over the land of Egypt, which seemed rather odd. Uh, Wonderful, isn't it? But they couldn't solve the problem. And... uh, I hope I'm not wrong here. I have a certain amount of... I chuckle when I get to chapter 9, verse 11, when the magicians... This was the, this was the plague of boils. The magicians couldn't stand before Moses because of the boils that were on them. I shouldn't really be amused, but I must say, I have a certain amount of, uh, uh, of humour. That is to say, these were actually attacks on the gods of Egypt. What were some of the gods of Egypt? The Nile. They worshipped the Nile. And so early on in the plague, the water of the Nile became like blood and you couldn't drink it. Their God was defeated. Or there was the frog who, in a strange kind of way, don't ask me why, a frog was a symbol of fertility. You better ask some expert why a frog should be a symbol of fertility. But it was. And they worshipped the frog. And so all the frogs, God was sovereign over the frogs. And they had, they worshipped the sun God. S-U-N. And when the final plague but one came, there was darkness over the land that could be felt. Interesting, isn't it? That God was saying, all these gods I will conquer. Now, uh, where are we today? No, it's not liberation theology or feminist theology. We are looking today at the kind of opposition there is to the true God, which will come from many gods in our world. Not just the Da Vinci Code that comes and goes, but the idols that abound, the religious movements that get away from the truth of Scripture, the more subtle idols that we all worship. And ultimately, we worship only God. I remember years and years ago when the, uh, the children were doing some uh, 
competition about modern contemporary idols. And the Sunday school teacher showed me some of the pictures. They had to draw pictures of idols, the modern idols. And uh, the kids know their stuff. I'm glad they haven't put the name of the top. It said a great deal about their family. Their name wasn't there. But some had depicted the television set. Some had put money. Some had painted the car. The most subtle one. The most profound one. One child had pictured the family. That's a subtle truth. That is, that what takes the place of God, what offers what God alone can give, and God says, none of these. And we expect that confrontation to happen. A proof of divinity. Secondly, a pathway to deliverance. All of this is so that God's people might be delivered. And you notice, as the story goes on, one little thing happens. That is... Um, the pathway to destruction for, God, for, for the God's enemy is also set alongside the prelude to deliverance. For alongside the judgment, it suddenly happens that the people of God are different. Just notice uh, in these chapters that God actually says that there was n- the people who lived in Goshen, it would not be. Did you notice in chapter 11, it was read to us, that uh, there was everybody else would be judged but in chapter 11 verse 7 you will know the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel and they alone will come out and earlier in the story it was dark everywhere except in the land of Goshen there was a pathway to destruction there was a prelude to deliverance you see the whole thrust of this story is that it will lead on to that great moment when in Colossians chapter 2 Jesus on the cross will defeat the enemy And he will, uh, the words remind us in Colossians chapter 2, that he disarms the powers and authorities, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So that eventually, if you're still here next week, uh, you'll see how the glorious deliverance comes. Confrontation, inevitable. Confrontation, painful. Finally, confrontation, fruitful. Here's what chapters 10 and 11 are really all about. We come to the climax. We come to the moment when eventually the final plagues come and God brings his people out. There's the pattern of condemnation and the pattern of salvation. The pattern of condemnation, it will eventually be that awful moment when there is darkness over the whole world except in the land of except in where the people of God are, there will be no darkness there. And that's a reminder, there is a final contrast, there is a final distinction between the people of God and those who follow the way of the world. There is that solemn moment of uh, the pattern of condemnation as we come to the Passover lamb and that terrible moment, that midnight cry in chapter 11 promised, not yet happened, promised that at that time every house in the land of Egypt, the firstborn will die. It's it's solemn truth. And because Pharaoh hardened his heart, he not only brought judgment on himself, he brought judgment on the land of Egypt and every 
place. You notice that in chapter 11, verse 5. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh to the firstborn of the slave girl, there will be that awful moment when the firstborn will die. And yet, at the people of God's people were brought safely through. We don't like the thought that there's an awesomeness of hell. Come tonight, we'll be looking at one of the parables that talks about hell. But there is that final moment, and this story is a reminder that it, it, it is such a painful reality for those who harden their hearts that God has sent his own son into that situation to be the Passover lamb so that we might be delivered. God's, there's the pattern of condemnation. The pattern of salvation, just three simple thoughts. God's sovereignty declared, that's chapter 10, verse 2, where he reminds them that all these signs have happened so that you can tell your children. Now, it's important. I'm glad the children are doing this story across there. Would you wish your children didn't have to read stories like this? Would you wish your children to have a kind of faith that is just nice and gentle and comforting? Nothing to do with blood, nothing to do with judgment. It's good that they're reading that story so that they will know and that the people of God, every time Passover came, and still does, it was a reminder to them of the cost of their salvation. It was a reminder that God is ultimately sovereign. And we live in a day of confrontation and thank God the final word is with him. God's people defended, God's sovereignty declared, God's people defended. Why were God's people brought out of Egypt? Because they were special? No. Because they happened to have been circumcised? No. No. Because they were Jewish by blood? No. Because at the last moment they would sacrifice the lamb and over their doorposts would be the, the blood of the lamb and some Egyptians learnt, got the message, just a few. They came out because of the blood of the lamb. God's people are defended, not because we are special, not because we deserve it, not for merit of our own. We sang about it in that great hymn before the throne of God above, but we are brought out because we are under the Lamb and His blood. But it reminds me that it was very costly that I might have that salvation. And therefore I expect that if I follow that Saviour, it will be costly for me also. Let me therefore come to that last point. God's sovereignty declared, God's people defended, God's standards demanded. Just uh, look at chapter 10, and when it comes to the climax moment, just let's take verse 24 onwards. He talked about the darkness coming uh, over all Egypt, except in the land of Israel, uh, where the Israelites were. Then in verse 24, Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, Go worship the Lord. Even your women and children may go with you, only leave your flocks and herds behind. But Moses said, You must allow us to have sacrifices and burnt offerings to present to the Lord. Our livestock too must go with us, not a hoof is to be left behind. We have to use some of them in worshipping the Lord. And until we get there, we will not know what we are to use to worship the Lord. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Years ago, I remember listening to a sermon at the Keswick Convention preached on that simple text, not a hoof 
is to be left behind. It was an extraordinary sermon, really. And it was all about surrender. And it was, in a way, it was not good exposition of Scripture. And those of us who were preachers sort of winced a bit. But we knew what he was getting at. If you take the story right through, when Moses gets to Pharaoh and says, you know, let them go, not, not, not on your life. But eventually, because of the plagues, he begins to soften. He even on one occasion in chapter 9 says, I have sinned. But he very quickly changed his mind. And he then started whittling it down. Well, okay, you can go, but only the men. You've got to leave the wives behind. Well, that's fairly subtle. Uh, no, not very subtle. That is to say, he knew full well that if you leave the wives behind, the men will come running back fairly quickly. We, we don't do very well without our wives for long. And soon then come running back to find mum. We, we mustn't leave your wives. And then comes, okay, you can take your wives with and your children, but none of your flock. They've got to stay here. None of your livelihood. And again, you see, the danger would, well, they'd go for a while, but they'd be back. It is the world's attempt. It is religion without Christ's attempt to get the people of God always to compromise. The world loves compromising Christians. They don't mind for a moment uh, that we uh, follow the way of Christ so long as we don't say he's the only saviour of the world. They don't mind at all that we uh, believe in the cross so long as we don't suggest that those who don't believe don't find eternal life. One of the great preachers of a bygone age, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, always said, you can tell a man's belief not by what he preaches, but by what he omits from the gospel. And it's the omissions that, you, that demonstrate where we really are. And says, Moses, not a hoof will be left behind. And while I can't preach a sermon like that gentleman at Keswick did, and you can't get a whole full surrender there, the standard that God demanded of Moses was that he could not compromise to get an easy peace. Isn't that a message for today? If we want to be well thought of, if we want people to think we're lovely, then believe the gospel but do miss bits out. Believe the gospel but compromise on the things that are painful. Suggest that it doesn't really matter. We all get to heaven at the end of the day. There are very many roads to God and ours is just one. If that's what you believe, then the way of the cross is meaningless to you. And I want to suggest to you, I hope this is not, we've rambled a bit, trying to get through so many chapters and I've, apologize that it's just been a sort of excursion around these chapters. Maybe you read it over when you get home, talk to your kids what they've received. But the thrust is fairly obvious, isn't it? That this is painful. It's costly. The plagues were not nice. And if for Christians there's a cost, to reject Christ is an even more awesome cost. And because that is true... God forgive me if I ever sell the gospel short to other people in order that I might be well thought of. Not one of those hardliners. I ask you to think very seriously as we pray in a moment. What sort of faith do we want? What sort of God do we worship? And what kind of God do we offer?
For remember the story of God and Pharaoh is looking on to a greater day when the enemy made his greatest attack of all at the cross and lost. Thank God for the triumph. But remember, there's a cost in the triumph.